Good morning. I said that especially even though Marty's not here, but I want Dave to be able to tell her that I did say good morning. So. <laughs> Okay, would you please turn uh, to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, and this whole section, I'm only going to read part of it, but it's all related to Advent because it's talking about Christ becoming man and what that means. Different parts of Scripture give us different aspects of what it means for him uh, to come into the world. And this, this particular passage has... Uh, its own unique perspective, and so we'll be looking at that, God willing, over the next several weeks. But let me read verses 5 through 8. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have a great plan for your people. Uh, The future uh, is bright. Uh, It's sure. Lord, and so uh, remind us of that uh, today and the next week and the next week, Lord, that uh, we have a sure and certain and glorious future because of Christ coming into the world. And so we ask your help now. We ask for your spirit to enlighten us as we uh, consider your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the famous poet from Minnesota... Robert Zimmerman, also known as Bob Dylan. Uh, He wrote a song in 1989. It's called Everything is Broken. Don't listen to him sing it because he sings like he normally sings, like he doesn't really care that he's singing it. But anyway, I just want to read you a few stanzas of that of that song. It goes like this at the beginning of it. Broken lines, broken strings, broken threads, broken springs, broken idols, broken heads, people sleeping in broken beds. Ain't no, ain't no use jiving, ain't no use joking. Everything is broken. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. Seems like every time you stop and turn around, something else just hit the ground. And it goes on like that, describing, um, in fact, really this fallen world. I don't know how much Bob Dylan really is holding to the gospel. He did at one time. Uh, He seems to have drifted away from that. But anyway, what he's describing there sounds a lot like Romans 8, where, for example, the creation, it says, was subjected to futility. Also, the creation, it says, will be set free from the bondage to corruption. That's what the creation is in right now. It's in bondage to corruption. Romans 8.22 in part says the whole creation has been groaning together. And then Paul comes to us in Romans 8.23 and he says, We too, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves. Everything is broken. 
But Hebrews 2, 5 and following tells us that everything is going to become unbroken for God's people. Um, now, as we come to 2, 5, we have to say, well, what came before 2, 5? Because you'll notice it starts off with, well, in the ESV anyway, it says, um, verse 5 starts with a now. It's just the common word because or for. So what has come before this? Let me be brief. I know, I think I looked in the archives, and I believe Blake preached through Hebrews several years ago. Uh, but um, I noticed on this particular section that it wasn't covered in a lot of depth. Uh, just he, he, It seems like he was just taking different sections out. So I thought I was safe to do this, that you wouldn't be saying, we already know this. He just did this a few years ago. I know for myself, when I look at some of the sermons I've done, I've, I've kept everything I've ever written. Sometimes I say, I wrote that? You know, I, I don't even, you know, it's, so I know how memories are. There was one lady in Poland, though. She's written everything down that I ever said in the margins of her Bible. So if I ever go back there and fill in, I have to do something new or she'll say, that's a repeat. Um, there's nothing wrong with doing repeats, though. You know, they're supposed to get better the more you do them. But anyway, in, in this passage in chapter one, you know that. The big thing he's been stressing there, it's not the only thing, but he's been stressing that Jesus Christ is superior to angels. And apparently the reason why he's doing that is because we know from uh, ancient Jewish writings that around this time, uh, the Jews began to uh, elevate angels, and particularly Michael the archangel is this great being. But the writer of Hebrews is trying to say Jesus is greater than all the angels. And as you go through chapter one, he, he points that out and he shows how that is true. Uh, and then you come in the first four verses to, in chapter two, you've got one of those several interludes or warning passages uh, where this one is saying, in effect, since Jesus Christ is so great, how awful it would be, what a tragedy it would be if you drift away from him. It's a warning not to drift away. You know, these people that he's writing to are under great pressure from their society to, to leave Christ. And so... Here's the beginning of the warning passages. If Christ is, is who uh, God says he is, uh, then uh, woe to those who turn away from him, who have confessed him, and then because of pressure from society, turn away from him. And then uh, 2.5 picks up where 1.14 leaves off, and I'll come back to, to that in a minute. So as Christians, yes, we confess that Jesus Christ is fully God. There's nothing lacking in him. Uh, as far as what it means to be God. In fact, in the first chapter in Hebrews 1.8, the father speaking to the son says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he's clearly God, and that is absolutely necessary for Christian orthodoxy. You cannot be an orthodox Christian, one who believes the scriptures and, and say that Jesus isn't really God, he's just a great man, or he's uh, a God, or that kind of thing. He's fully God, but also he's fully man. And this section is really bringing that out. And that's just as important to hold to that, to be orthodox. Um, you know, there's a lot of heresy that's talked about in the New Testament of how people were denying that Jesus Christ was really the incarnate God. And so it's just as important to hold to that. Why is that? Well, because Jesus must be truly human, fully human, in order for, for mankind to be restored to the intention God had for mankind in the beginning. To bring him to his full destiny. 
And that's the angle he's coming at. Now, often we think of the incarnation, and, and we should. We think, of, we think about how he came to save us from our sins, and that's absolutely true. That's foundational. But there's another aspect to that as well, that Jesus Christ came back to restore us to dominion, to the original dominion and dignity that God gave us as human beings. Uh, again, right now everything is broken. Okay, so... First of all, this world was designed by God to be under the rule and dominion of humanity. That's what God did. And that's brought out in verses 5 through 8. Now, this original design and purpose of God is still in effect. God didn't cancel it when man fell in the Garden of Eden. It's still on God's agenda. Uh, notice 2.5 again. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. And then he goes on from there. The original divine mission hasn't been scrubbed. Again, I mentioned 2, two 1 through 4, how it's parenthetical. It doesn't mean it's unimportant, but it's that sober warning uh, that we, we must not turn from Christ. But notice how that the end of verse, uh, the end of chapter 1 links to verse 5. Uh, in fact, go back to verse 13 of the first chapter, and let, let me read that, and let me show you how he goes back to the subject of angels. So look at verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? In other words, Jesus Christ, the God man, is in the highest position in the universe. He's at the right hand of God, the place of power and authority. And he says, to which of the angels did he ever say that? He never did. So then he tells us, well, what are angels? What, what is their ministry? And it's quite astounding when you see this. Verse 14 are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So today, the angels have a ministry to God's people. How that all works, I'm not sure, but they, they are serving spirits to us. I'm sure they have a watch care over us. Uh, there's not a lot told. told uh, we're not told a lot about that in the Bible. But anyway, to get the flow... He says, are they not ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Then drop down to verse 5 of the next chapter. He's still talking about angels. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. In other words, there's a world to come and God has not appointed angels to be the ones who are going to be ruling in that world. It's going to be it's going to be mankind. Mankind has the place of dominion. Uh, in other words, God has ordained that angels should serve the heirs of salvation, not only right now, but in the new heavens and the new earth to come forever and ever. Angels will be serving us. They will be under us in authority. That's our destiny to be rulers. By the way, look at that phrase of the world to come. There are several uh, terms used in the New Testament for the word world. One that you're, you're probably familiar with, the word cosmos, or cosmos, as, as it's pronounced oftentimes. That's the way we get our word cosmetics. It talks about the, the order of things, how things work. And there's, not, there's another term that's oftentimes translated ages, but it's translated world sometimes. But this is a, another word, and it's a word which means the inhabited world. In classical Greek, it's often used politically, like it will talk about... Caesar's realm, and it will use this word, the place that he inhabits, that he rules. Well, here in this context, it's, re it's referring to the inhabited world that is to come. 
the world that will be inhabited by redeemed people and the angels. Uh, and it's talking about the inhabited world, namely the, the planet you're sitting on right now, which will be renovated, will be renewed. Uh, again, I, 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 I will hop on this until I draw my last breath, but your destiny is not to float around in fog someplace forever and ever. You're going to be on this real planet that's been regenerated, renewed. Um, it's going to be a real world inhabited by um, God's people, saved people. Uh, the eternal state, we often call it. The, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, it's true that, that presently we're living in the age of Messiah. That's what Hebrews 1, 2 told us. It says that we're living in the last days now. Since Christ came, we're living in the last days. Uh, that's what the Bible calls this present age. But it's obvious um, as you look around that there's something terribly wrong if this is the age of Messiah. What's wrong is things aren't complete yet. Everything is broken. That's why the writer of Hebrews here refers to the world to come. And, and by the way, folks... We all have our issues right now and our problems in life and, and joyful things, sad things, and we have to deal with those things. But one thing the Bible really stresses, especially the New Testament, is that the world to come is not to be a back burner issue in our minds. It's to be there governing our thinking all the time. Um, it's not to be something that we say, well, that's low priority. That's pie in the sky by and by. It's to govern the way we think. In the New Testament, Old Testament as well, very much a future-oriented book. Uh, it talks about last things all the time. We're going someplace. We're not on a bridge to nowhere. We're not just living this life and and now we die and that's it, like dogs. Listen just, for, for example, a few verses that bring that out. In this book of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 13 and 14. Therefore, let us go forth to him, to Christ, outside the camp, Bearing his reproach. So he's thinking about go to the place where where you will be insulted, where you will be looked down upon because you belong to Christ and you you believe in him and you follow him. Why should we do that? Why should I why should I go out there and be ridiculed for being a Christian and to bear the insults of being a Christian, especially as it's getting more and more so in society? Well, the 14th verse tells us why, because here we have no continuing city. But we seek the one to come. Very much future oriented. Peter says virtually the same thing. First Peter 1.13. <clears throat> Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you notice how it puts it? Set your hope fully upon that. Don't put, your, don't put all your hope on uh, maybe some great change is coming into your life or maybe a marriage is coming or you're going to you're going to build a new house or you're going to get ready to graduate. Hope in those things and rejoice in them and be glad that God has given you those kinds of blessings. But don't put all your hope there because those things are passing away. First Corinthians seven. Paul says, in verse twenty nine, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short for now on those who have wives should live as as if they do not. He's talking here about hold lightly to the things of this world. Uh, those who mourn. Are you mourning today? Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. <clears throat> those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. 
those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. Why? Because he says the form of this world is passing away. It's temporary. Let me give you one more. It's from this book of Hebrews. We're told that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they lived in tents. In fact, Abraham lived a very uh, uh, advanced civilization in what we call today southern Iraq. He came out not knowing where he was going. God didn't tell him at the beginning. He went out not not knowing where he was going. But we're told this about Abraham. And we wouldn't have known this about him unless the Bible had revealed it to us. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He was focused on the future. And if you're not focused on the future, then you are deficient. Because the Bible says, let your future be governed by that. Um, So, someone might be thinking... Wrongfully, your logic might be at this point, well, he's telling us this life doesn't matter. Well, that's not true, because how could we be the light of the world and the salt of the earth? We're to be engaged in this life. We're in the world, but not of the world. God has left us here for his glory to bring the truth of Christ to others. But we must always keep our eyes on the final prize. So. The world to come, that occupied world. <clears throat> Hebrews 2.5 reminds us that there's going to be a future completion of, of the work of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Look, if you're a Christian, you're going to be living in a civilization in the future. You're not going to be, again, you're not going to be isolated by some <clears throat> foggy, ethereal place where you're, you're plucking a harp and uh, <clears throat> taking time out, sit on a cold cement bench. You know, those kinds of pictures you see how how heaven is depicted. In fact, while the Bible talks about heaven, I I have come to the place in my habits where I always think of heaven in the in the final state as heaven come to earth. It's it's, we're going to be living on an earthly heaven and a heavenly earth, whichever way you want to put it. But you're going to be living in a civilization that's going to have uh, organization. There are going to be things to do. There's going to be work to be done. I, Revelation 22 says his servants shall serve him. And at the at the great risk of being misunderstood, I don't think that that, that, that eternity is going to be a, a singspiration, a worship service. We're going to be doing things. We're going to be building things. We're going to be growing things. We're going to be learning. We're never going to be God. So we're always going to be learning new things. About Jesus, about he's, he's got an eternal being. He, there's endless things to know and understand about the triune God. Uh, we need to think of it that way. It's going to be a functioning society of fully redeemed people, and everybody will be really nice. There'll be nobody that you say, I really don't want to be around him. He just rubs me the wrong way. Peter says it's going to be the home of righteousness. And now let me get to that bottom line again. Angels aren't going to rule that world. You're, you and I are going to be ruling that world under Christ, of course. That, that has to mean something. It's not just empty talk. There's going to be, you know, okay, five cities for you, two cities for you, that sort of thing. I realize that's a parable. Now, What does all this have to do with Jesus being genuine humanity? Well, look at verses 6 through 8. I'll just read it again. It has been testified somewhere. Surely the writer of Hebrews knew where it was. But you remember, 
At the time he wrote this, people didn't have Bibles. And it was scrolls, so he didn't say. It's, it's written at five feet, six inches rolled out that this is, thing is written in the 8th Psalm. He, no, he knows where it is, and he likes to talk that way. And that, so he says, um, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection to his feet. So he, he quotes this little piece of Psalm 8. A, a quick note on Psalm 8. It's a song of the majesty, the great majesty of Yahweh, uh, the immense greatness of his creation. And yet what's so surprising about that psalm is that David, the writer, by inspiration, he's amazed that despite the greatness of God in his creation, God cares about little me, little seemingly insignificant man. I mean, man is the image of God. You know, churches like this which is a Bible-believing church, you hold to the, the full depravity of man that, man, that the fall has affected us in every aspect of our being. And sometimes, I'm not saying you do this, because I don't know you well enough to say this, but sometimes I've noticed in churches that, are, that hold to the doctrines of grace and they, they hold to that truth of the depravity of man, sometimes we forget that despite the fact that mankind has fallen, that mankind is the image of God. And mankind is an amazing being that God has made despite his fallenness. I mean, he's capable. He's inventive. He's creative. I mean, look at this thing I've got in my pocket. I mean, I don't have a clue how this works. I know how to poke it and make it do things. But if, if the world, if today, they, all the people that know how to do this, went away, I'd be back square wheels again. I, I, I don't know how this works. Man is an amazing being. Every, everywhere you look, I mean, look at that organ. I mean, just look around. Uh, this isn't to praise man, it's to praise the God who made man. But we should never forget that, uh, that, that God uh, created his image in us. So we're not like the beast of the field and things that crawl and all of that. So here's a key idea of this, of this whole passage. The eighth psalm is used by the writer of Hebrews to show that Jesus, he is the perfect consummate man. And he had to be man to restore mankind to this place of dominion. That's what he's bringing out in this by quoting through the eighth psalm. He came to restore man to his dignity, lordship and dominion over the inhabited world. Now, I won't take the time to turn back there, but when I keep talking about dominion, you've you've got to be thinking about Genesis 1. Because originally, I'll turn there, you don't have to. Because you can do whatever you want to do. You know, when, when preachers say that, you don't have to. We think, well, yeah, well, you know what? I'm going to do it, do it if I want to. And if I don't want to, I won't. So I understand that. It's just a habit that preachers use. You don't have to turn there. Yeah, it's like, no kidding. But listen to this. So God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish. Of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. There's a lot of alls and everys in that verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's man's original dignity before the fall. God's never taken that away. 
So when you come to Psalm 8, which is quoted here in Hebrews 2, it's a, it's a poetic restatement of Genesis 1. And what's fascinating is he's saying that the words that were in Psalm 8, they don't only apply to man's original creation, but as he says here, this applies to the world to come. It's never been revoked, but it's been put under a curse. And yes, it's true. We live in a bloody world. It's a sweaty, toilsome world. It's an irksome world. Ecclesiastes brings that out. You work and toil. You build up wealth in this world, which is right. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as you don't idolize it, as long as you're generous, you die and a fool gets it, says in Ecclesiastes. It's, a, it's an aggravating world because it's a fallen world. Uh, the world is no longer user-friendly. User it just isn't. Anybody who ever has worked in industry, for example, physical industry, like working in the woods like my father was a logger and I worked for him time to time, you're constantly getting hurt. There's always branches poking you and bugs. And it's just, it's a really, it's a hard, they've made it easier now with machines, but it's still hard. It's a hard, it's a hard life. You know, several years ago when we lived in Mechanic Falls, the Mechanic Falls Poland region is heavily populated with oak trees. I mean, I know you've got oak trees here too, but it's, it's by far the dominant tree in that area. Well, several years ago, two years in a row, in fact, we had a bumper crop of acorns. Now, before that happened, we had a few squirrels around. No chipmunks. But those two years, the chipmunks went mad. They, they moved in and they dug holes all around my cellar. They were storing those things everywhere. And if you went outside and they saw, you know, chipmunks will scold you with that, ch that chipping sound. Like a, it sounds like a, a fire detector that needs a battery change. Is that doing that? They would go outdoors and they would start chirping like that. Hundreds of them. And I had no control over them. I didn't have dominion. I'm supposed to. I remember there's a scene on... <laughs> There's a, there's a scene on Happy Days where Fonzie, he's out camping, and he's laying, there in his t he's lying there in his tent, and he's trying to go to sleep, and there's all these animals making noises. And finally, he sits up, and he says, cool it, and everything stops. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't say cool it, but I one time, just for the heck of it, I went out there, and they were doing that. I said, stop, and they stopped for about one second, and then they said, ah, and they went right back to it again. And then, of course... You think about what the, the problems in Florida, Burmese pythons, they're destroying the Everglades. They're eating everything. They're eating, they're eating the deer. They're eating everything there. Uh, iguanas uh, in Florida, an invasive species. If you've seen some of the pictures of pickup trucks, because it's open season all the time on them, you'll see these pickup trucks, and they're just loaded with iguanas that have been shot. They're overrun with them. It's a terrible problem. Uh, another problem in the south and it's coming north, and some of it's coming down from Canada now, we understand, is the problem of feral hogs. They are destroying hundreds and hundreds of acres in the south. These wild pigs in there, they're dangerous too. We're supposed to have dominion over these things, but it's a battle. It's a tough battle. Rats in the cities. What a problem. Look at New York City, the problem they have with rats. We're supposed to be saying, get out, or... You know, no, we have no control over them, or very little control. So we kill them. Now, look at the specifics there in verses 6 through 8 about humanity. 
tells us in verse 6, God has an ongoing care and interest in, in humanity. He, he says he cares for humanity. He watches over humanity. A fact that astonishes David, it's not put here, but in Psalm 8.3, the verse that comes just before the verses quoted here in Hebrews 2, David says this, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, interesting, he uses the word fingers there, because that's where we really can show our dexterity. So he poetically talks about God with his fingers doing things. When I consider the moon and the stars which you have ordained, and then it's picked up. What is man that you are mindful of him? And again, in the full scheme of things, we seem so insignificant, almost unnoticeable and unimportant. But the creator thinks on us. In fact, he thinks on all of his creation. He feeds the animals. They cry out. He feeds them. We're told in the Psalms. Um, God is so kind that he shows his benevolence to the unthankful and the evil. And on us, on every hair of our head is numbered. He watches over us. He cares for us. He oversees us. Also, Hebrews 2, 7 tells us in three ways that humanity is of a very high order. Now, what a statement that is. I would never have thought this unless I, unless I saw it in the Bible. Hebrews 2, 7 says that he made us a little lower than the angels. Just a little lower. It's not like we're, in comparison to angels, it's not like we're bugs. We're just a little lower than the angels. You know, angels are, are depicted in the Bible as highly intelligent beings. Uh, holy beings. We don't belong to the classes of things like, uh, well, you know, we're told that we're just advanced monkeys. We're just baboons. that are, We're all overdeveloped baboons. That's all we are. But we're not. We're not of that order. Um, like the beast of the field, winged creatures, and things that live in the ocean, lakes. You know, any place you go in the world where there's people, people can speak language. They can, and, if they, and if they can't read and write, they can be taught to read or write because they're the image of God. Um, they, can, they can learn to do math. Uh, they can be... They can be Brought to a point by the Spirit of God, the preaching of the gospel, where they can repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Animals can't do that. So, you know, when you're getting ready to go someplace in your car, and you're one of those people that take your car, your dog, into the car, and you say to your dog, uh, Grover, this morning we're going, to, we're going to go to Ellsworth, and we're going to go to Martins, and we're going to go after we go to Martins, we're going to go up to, to Rennie's, and then maybe we'll stop and, and we'll stop at Dairy Queen and like that. You know what? That dog doesn't have a clue what you're saying. <laughs> not, a, not a clue. In his, in his little brain, he probably knows he's going to get in the car, but he doesn't know any of that stuff. But we, we act like they know all that stuff, like they're listening to us. They're not. They're not the image of God. I'm sorry to disappoint you. I know you'll keep doing it anyway, and it makes you feel good, but, you know. Also, this, this passage tells us that humanity has been crowned with glory and honor. And, again, it says you have set him over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet. That's why God made us, to rule, to cultivate to hold and trust this planet. In fact, again, if you look at verse 8, look, look how comprehensive this is. God didn't say, okay, you've got the Garden of Eden, that's it. No, look what it says. He put all things, 
verse eight, everything in subjection under his feet. Now I'm putting everything in subjection to, to him. He left nothing outside of his control. That was our lot. It still is our lot, but that was our, our perfect lot before we fell in our father, Adam. You know, it's folks, it's unimaginable how far we have fallen. What we were as a race, how far we've fallen. Well, now you see people lying in gutters and adulterers and, and the, the, the atheism and the agnosticism in, in our society. It's hard to understand how far we have fallen as a human race. But we have, you know, people are all bummed out the last several years because, like, you know, the Patriots are 3 and 10. And I've got this friend who's a pastor in New York and... He's one of those guys, he's always like that, you know, like that. And he, he's a Buffalo Bills fan. I didn't mention they lost four Super Bowls in a row. The, the Bills did years ago. But he said to me, he said, oh, by the way, he, he was corresponding to me in the email just a couple of weeks ago about something. And he said, oh, by the way, he says, the Patriots stink. He says, how the mighty have fallen. I couldn't care less personally. It, you know, it doesn't affect my life. Uh, but that's what, that's what we are as a human race. How far we have fallen. It, only God knows, because we, we can't tell how, what a brilliant people we once were without the effects of, of sin in our minds, the things that we could have done, we could do. I mean, look at Adam. I mean, Adam was fully formed as a thinking, brilliant human being. He could name the animals. He wasn't some caveman that just crawled out and was just making grunt, grunting noises. He could speak. He could talk with God. He could fellowship with God. Our capacities have, have been greatly diminished. Now, certainly, as you look at the eighth psalm, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of it. But what he's saying here in this passage is, though, is that mankind was meant to be this perfect man. Now, the sad present reality is this, that we've lost our grip. In a sense, we've forfeited the royal position that God gave us. But the world to come will be subdued completely and governed by God through his creatures, namely humanity. That, that's your destiny. So if you thought you were just going to lay around and sit on a couch and watch YouTube all day for the rest of your life, which is forever, it's not, you're going to be busy, but it won't be toilsome. Now, man in Christ, or man, man in Adam is what I meant to say, um, he chose in the Garden of Eden not to accept the position God gave him. God said, you're my vice regent. Man said, no, I want to be regent. I want to be the king. That's the problem that we have today. The creature can never succeed when he's in rebellion against God. Job 9.4 says, who has, who has hardened himself against God and prospered? And if you're an unbeliever this morning... I tell you from the authority of God's word, if you keep your heart hard against God and you refuse to repent and believe in Jesus, you will not prosper. In fact, that word prosper comes from the word shalom, which means wholeness, fullness. You will not succeed in rebellion against God. The condition that the human race is in today is described as being dead in sin, a tool of Satan, and by nature, children of wrath, destined for wrath. Death reigns. Yeah, you try to have dominion today. I can't stay alive long enough. You know, I just start trying to practice dominion, gain a little wisdom. Time to die. God is now our enemy as a race. 
and we need to be reconciled to God. Everything has been spoiled and wrecked by sin. That's what Romans 8 tells us, right? Subjected to futility, bondage of corruption, groaning, moaning. The cold gives us frostbite. We get burned by the sun. The sun gives us cancer. Ants crash our picnics. Pests, vermin, disease. I read the obituaries every day. I read them in the Lewiston paper and I read them in the Bangor paper. And uh, it's amazing how many people, uh, they die of dementia. It's a big issue. There's all kinds of different forms of dementia. And we're seeing it right now in someone that we know that we're close to. And it's a terrible thing to see someone who's been respected and godly to have this happen to them and now being strange and acting weird and and the sinfulness coming out. They have no control over it. It's a thorn and thistle world. It's a sweat of the brow world. Everything is broken, but not all is lost. Mankind's original place of dominion isn't forever gone. Did you notice at the end of verse 8, those two words, so, so encouraging. It's only one word in the original, but it's the, that word, not yet. Verse 8. See that? He put everything under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Not yet. That implies that it will come. It's just not yet. Read on. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He tasted death for everyone. Perfect man, fulfillment of Psalm 8, the last Adam, the Lord from heaven, he's called. God, the son, becomes one of us without sin. And through his atoning work on the cross, through his death, his burial and resurrection. Verse 10 tells us many sons are brought to glory. They're crowned with glory and honor. And all things will be put back into mankind's feet again in Jesus Christ. So in closing, here's the question. Will you be in that number? Will you be part of that eternal dominion where you're ruling and reigning over all things? You'll have your assigned portion by Christ. Will, will you be there as a person who in this world repented of sin, believed in Jesus, you clung only to his cross work and you trusted only in his righteousness for your standing before God. Well, the Bible says if you do that, if that's you, here's a promise and I close with it. It's Revelation 3, 21 and 22. It talks about the overcomer. The overcomer, we're told in 1 John, is a person who believes that Jesus is the Christ. He believes in him. Here it is. To him who overcomes... This is Jesus speaking, the, the risen, glorified Jesus. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Remember, ruling, reigning, dominion. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Father, we pray that no one within the hearing of these words will reject the gift that you have given us in the incarnate son. We confess this morning that Jesus is both God and man, but it's in particular in his work as man 
that he has come and shed his blood on the cross. And not only as we believe in him, are our sins forgiven, that would be enough. But he restores us to a kingdom of priests, people who will rule and reign with Christ. As he just as we just read, we will sit down with him on his throne and rule under his benevolent dominion. Father, give us this this outlook as we live this life as things happen every day, which are so vexing to our souls as we see men live unrighteously and ungodly and deliberately do things that defy you. Help us to be patient because we know that your coming is drawing near. We thank you, Lord, that we have hope, a hope that cannot be taken away because of what Jesus has done. Thank you that he's risen, and it's in him we hope, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.